Welcome to our podcast from the Ark Insider, the Africa-focused podcast offering some informal but well-informed Africa-focused conversation, touching on news, current affairs, culture, and other ongoing topics of interest. I'm Karen Allen, and I'm speaking to you from South Africa. My co-presenter, Tara O'Connor, the Managing Director of Arc, the Pan-African Risk Consultancy firm, Africa Risk Consulting, joins me from France. We both live, breathe, and work African affairs, and our podcast aims to stimulate ideas among those who share a fascination with this part of the world. Tara, good to talk to you. Maybe I should say bonjour, because we're going to have a sort of French-focused uh, podcast today, and you are in France. Yes, and I thought... That's probably time. After all this time in France, it's probably uh, about time that we looked at the uh, France-Africa relationship. And, uh, and so that's what we're doing. Well, here, everyone's talking about load shedding, big power cuts. It's a bit of a legacy issue in South Africa where poor maintenance of the state infrastructure has meant that the system grinds to a halt frequently. Um, so that's partly why and it happens, and it happens a lot in the wintertime. So um, we're all wrapped up incredibly warm. We've just about managed to get the internet going. There have been some major developments, which we'll talk about a little bit later on in the podcast, um, relating to energy in South Africa. But first, though, let's take a look at what's been happening in the news since our last podcast. Good afternoon, and we're coming on the air at this hour because President Biden is about to deliver his first address while overseas, including a major announcement from Cornwall, England. He is expected to reveal plans for the U.S. to donate 500 million doses, a half a billion doses of the Pfizer vaccine to poor nations around the world. Founder of the Synagogue Church of All Nations, T.B. Joshua, has died. His death has been confirmed by his church. The preacher died last night at a Lagos hospital. He was 57 years old. Nigeria's government says it's suspending Twitter indefinitely after the company deleted a controversial tweet from the country's president. The African Union has suspended Mali's membership in response to last week's military coup and is threatening sanctions if a civilian-led government isn't restored. Today, Germany is for the first time acknowledging that it committed genocide during its colonial rule in what is now Namibia in southern Africa. Well, picking up on the Nigerian story there, Tara, Nigeria has banned Twitter. It's the latest country to be using social media to control its population. Remember we talked about something similar in Uganda just a few months ago. Well, in this particular instance, the ban is being implemented by the Bihari government after a tweet from the president's account violated Twitter's rules. Um, what happened was he made reference to Nigeria's civil war in the context of a warning to those involved in the unrest in the southeast of the country, where, as you know, separatist tensions are running high. Now, Nigeria said it's only going to permit Twitter to operate if it registers inside Nigeria. Now, the significance of that is to do with the law and with data sovereignty. If the company is registered in Nigeria, it'll be subject to local laws. Just a bit of context, like Kenya, Nigeria's been debating a bill which would massively constrain the use of social media. It would get things like bloggers to have to register uh, in the same way that journalists often have to register and uh, news organisations have to do likewise. And it's seen by human rights campaigners as massively squeezing the democratic space. So we can expect to see more countries to go in the same direction, I suspect, uh, given the fact that Twitter and other social media platforms are becoming really important 
as a means of being able to exchange information, and it becomes particularly critical at times of elections. Yes, and uh, there's a, and speaking of elections, there's a huge irony in this because social media and particularly Twitter were essential to Bihari's original election win. A very effective campaign reached out to uh, a new generation of voters. Um, but again, more recently, you know, Buhari's government has sought to squash um, social media, in particular ever since the NSARS campaign, which again was a social media and crowdfunded protest um, against police violence. And since then, we've had lots of uh, people around Buhari calling for greater control of social media. Indeed. Tara, can we talk about electricity? Um, I don't normally get excited about electricity and I don't get excited normally about energy generally. And I know uh, you probably are a little better at that than me, but we've had uh, quite a significant breakthrough for private electricity provision in South Africa. Businesses will now be allowed to generate power of up to 100 megawatts each without a license. Now, up until now, electricity generation has been firmly held by the state with private individuals only allowed to generate currently only one megawatt. Uh, so that's enough to power about 400 homes. It's obviously significant because I talked at the beginning of the podcast about the power outages, the load shedding, as they call it here, which have become almost a, a daily occurrence here in South Africa, unless, of course, you live near to Parliament or you live close to the president, where people don't seem to be affected by power outages at all. But it's all about ESCOM, isn't it, which is the main um, power provider. It's been at the heart of this extraordinary state capture, this corruption and fraud uh, investigations. Um, and, and you know, there have been inflated contracts. It's been failed to hold to account. Uh, it's failed to actually support um, um, good maintenance or even some of the new power plants, the Matupi power plant. I heard, I heard a few days on the radio, Tara, that a third of all the electricity generating plants were actually malfunctioning, a third of them. That, That's extraordinary, you know, isn't therein it? Therein lies the real problem, um, that it's, it's a question of maintenance, but also, you know, you know, you know not building properly the new uh, capacity that was meant to replace the old. So private sector involvement is already there, but this just opens a door to another level of involvement. And I know, for example, the mines, Mining companies have been see looking to government to um, looking to government to allow them to generate their own electricity in a renewable way that will allow them to meet their net zero uh, targets on their international platforms. Uh, so you know, so it's it is a great step forward, and I think there is pretty much universal celebration in South Africa. Sura Ramaphosa has been uh, speaking to the G7, lobbying on behalf of the rest of the continent to waive the TRIPS agreement and push for greater vaccine equality. TRIPS, of course, is the uh, trade-related intellectual property laws. Um, remember, we, we talked about them a lot, you know, back in early 2000 with the issue about access to antiretroviral drugs. But it does look like Ramaphosa is trying to be um, a cheerleader for the rest of the continent, a good example of African agency, and using that experience of AIDS to develop a strategy vis-a-vis -vis COVID vaccines. Of course, I was talking to someone yesterday as a development specialist who said, you know, we did talk about trying to get access to these vaccines, but really what we should be doing is trying to build capacity inside 
countries like South Africa to be able to build, to be able to get support to manufacture our own. It's a good point. Absolutely. And just on that point, you know, uh, very good news again is coming out of Tanzania. You know, I think, uh, you know, we've been watching Tanzania quite closely and, you know, particularly with the COVID denialism that um, that was so much a characteristic of, of John Magafuli's uh, presidency. And now the new president, Suluhus Hassan, has now just set up recently a new committee, a committee to deal with COVID. And that committee, she says, will deal with the science, not politics, which is a, a, a significant step forward. And I have to say, I just have to give a shout out for Tanzania simply because, um, you know, all the steps that the new president is actually taking to re uh, to develop relationships in the region. She made a fantastically successful visit to, to Kenya and wowed the parliament, uh, the Kenyan parliament in a speech in Swahili that was peppered with jokes that had the parliamentarians really rolling in the aisles, really laughing and uh, and making light of their previous very hostile relations between the two countries, very competitive. And now I think we can actually start seeing under her presidency um, a renewed, um, better, greater trade and all of those good things that um, that that underpin the East African uh, community. You're listening to The Ark Insider, the Africa-focused podcast with Karen Allen and Tara O'Connor. Now, our guest on the podcast this week is Leonard Mbule Nzege, Ark's author for Ark's Côte d'Ivoire, Gabon, Guinea and Senegal briefings. While he's completing his PhD at the University of Cape Town, looking at democratisation trends in Benin, Burkina Faso, Cameroon and Côte d'Ivoire since the advent of multi-party politics in the early 1990s, Leonard is personally well-placed to bring us insights on francophonie, as the Franco-African relationship is known. He's a Cameroonian national from the English-speaking part of Cameroon. Nevertheless, he speaks French fluently. Leonard, wonderful to meet you. Welcome to the Arc Insider. Thank you very much, Karen, and uh, thank you very much to the uh, ARC executive, um, Ms. Tara O'Connor, for having me on this uh, wonderful podcast. Thank you very much, Leonard, and you're very, very welcome. One of the reasons why we're speaking to you now, Leonard, is that um, President Macron, the French president, has made a decision that French military cooperation in the Sahel is being wound down. Uh, he's also suspending military cooperation in the Central African Republic. A lot of changes there over the past few days, as many people will have seen in the news. But actually, let's kick off, first of all, with culture, because we've mentioned there about this idea of francophonie. Many of our listeners will not be familiar with the powerful links that France has maintained since independence. Can you therefore outline for us perhaps the architecture of that relationship and outline perhaps how France-Africa relations has morphed into Franc-Afrique. You know, Franc-Afrique, France-Africa relations have been, you know, evolving over the past 170 years, but then they've really had an acceleration in the, you know, post-independence era. And as you said, um, 
it's very it differs significantly when you compare it to say the relation between the United Kingdom and its former colonies in Africa because um, the French did a very took very deliberate steps towards establishing a French community should I say a French community and beyond just having um, you know territorial control over their various colonial possessions so what they did is that you know they have a um, uh, the curriculum the education curriculum that you get across the francophone countries is very similar to what you have in France which is quite different from what you get with respect to the British colony former British um, possessions because you know Nigeria Zimbabwe Cameroon some of them write the A-levels. They have, some of them have their various, um, di- have their different like, final examinations. So on the educational level now, you know, you have that sort of um, commonality. So for instance, um, you know, the Francophone students, if you deal in philosophy and literature, the students in France, as well as the students in Gabon, in Benin, Côte d'Ivoire, they would have all read Rousseau, Montesquieu, and all the other French um, 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 academic icons. And likewise, um, in the French education system, they would have also read about, you know, Senghor, they would have read about um, Blaise Diagne and all the other Fre- um, African um, literary greats who um, were socialized in the French education. So that's just one aspect. But then in addition to that, um, in the cultural aspect, um, even, as I said, education has always been the backbone of it. Um, France has done very, very well to maintain, you know, links such to the, to the extent that France is regarded as the... Um, place of choice, the place of choice for um, African students to pursue their education. And, you know, the education systems, uh, educational uh, institutions where they attend, such as Sorbonne, um, ANS, ENA, um, Sciences Po, what they call the Grandes Ecoles, you know, that's what forms African elites alongside the French elites. So there's some sort of mixation between the two of them. So the likelihood is that, you know, as an African going to those institutions, you will be in touch with the French elite. And, you know, that uh, relation, between the metropole and the rest of Africa continues. So that's just one of the foundations. So interesting. My first exposure to Africa was actually um, Franco-Africa. It was Senegal, actually. And I remember being struck how different it was to, say, neighbouring Gambia and Zanglophone. And, you know, the thing that was really, really striking was this sense of integration. It was like, oh, my goodness, there's lots of interracial marriages. There's lots of Senegalese sitting uh, alongside French expatriates listening to Ismail Law in giving a wonderful concert in the centre of Dakar. You know, it was a very, very different feel. Obviously, that is a relationship that some consider quite paternalistic uh, and things have moved on a lot since then. But it's really striking and even down to the food. I mean, you can be sitting in Dakar and close your eyes and you could think that you're potentially in Paris because you can get a baguette, you can get a glass of red wine and it's it's not something that's seen as for the elite. It's 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 a regular thing that that people aspire to. It's incredible kind of cultural cultural colonialism, if you like. Very very much, and it goes both ways, as you said. Um, you know, some people might look at it as um, paternalistic, but then there's an embrace because, as I said, there's been a mix. There's been a you know an integration on the both sides, whereby you know you have a lot of the French elite, which has who have spent their time in Africa. I mean, you look at the old guard, the Chiracs, the Mitterrands. They had historical links with Africa, working in the colonial administration. Even President Macron, President Macron, he spent he did an internship in Nigeria, and although it's not francophone Africa. Obviously, having gone through the education system with ENA and even through the political party systems, the student movements, there's been a lot of interaction. As you said, it goes right down to, you know, food. When you're in any, not just the big um, uh, Francophone African cities, but even the smaller ones, you get boulangeries, the bakeries. 
French dressing and culture. Um, you have also, as time has evolved because of globalization, access to information technology and the internet, satellite TV, you know, a lot of the television programs, you know, what we watch, we'll watch the French Football League and a lot of the French football players, um, players playing there and excelling are African players. So they know off the, you know, uh, off the um, top of their head, oh, there's a player from Cameroon, DJ Drogba. Um, uh, I'm just trying to think of so many icons, so many African icons have passed through there. And likewise, the French um, national team with the lots of Africans on it. So as you said, you know, there's a very um, multifaceted interaction between um, a knowledge about the situation, not only in France, but also with the African, uh, what goes on with the French African countries. Leonard, I want to come back to something, you know, the architecture of this relationship, you know, it goes back to, you know, the, you know, the very, you know, in a way, the French uh, uh, government has never left, they set about having a sort of, uh, they had a currency structure, defence and security agreements, as well as those social and uh, personal bonds. And that created, that actually has tied at least 14 West African countries very much into the treasury in France, which remains to this day. Yes, and that's a very, very pertinent point with respect to the structural factors which have been able to, you know, maintain and reinforce the relations between France and its former colonies. And as you said, the currency, um, I mean, the EU, we talk about the euro, but what was predated in terms of a common currency zone was the franc CFA. And it was established in the 1940s and then it was uh, 1948. Um, and then it was um, evolved into 1970 under a new formulation, the post-independence um, era. And what it basically does is that, you know, you have the, the member countries, they put 50% of their reserves into the French central bank as a guarantee. And now you have a fixed exchange rate and then you have access to the French treasury. And it also, you know, enables them to give uh, the French to give aid at requests by the various African countries. And, you know, for the conservatives, they'll say that this is, you know, helping us to maintain inflation. This helps us to create some sort of currency stability. But then, as you know, um, as economists, you know that if you don't have control of your currency, you can't really dictate your monetary and fiscal policy. Now, another structural issue has been the def accord de defense, that is the defense accords, whereby France has secret um, agreements um, with the various African countries and says, okay, we're going to be your security guarantor. We're going to have, you know, troops on the ground. We're going to have bases there. Or in the event that there is a problem, um, maybe your president is in difficulty, we will send in troops to defend the president, but then we'll do it under the guise of looking at the French interests and French citizens. So it's very, very unique um, compared to, I said, you know, the other um, neo-colonial relationships whereby, as you said, and we had a discussion, France, they moved out of the house, but they left their furniture and their clothes in the wardrobe. Yes, <laughs> very good analogy. And that's, you know, and I mean, this goes back to, you know, France's own sense, you know, it very much benefits France having 50% of, the of these countries' reserves held in the French treasury. But there's also an element of, the, of French grandeur, depending on, uh, on their relationship with uh, West African countries. Would you like to explain a bit about that, Leonard? Of course. Um, you know, in the aftermath of World War II, um, France came out very, very scarred. However... France realized that on international stage, they could still have a backyard. They could have a sphere of influence in 
Frank, in the Francophone states of French, um, um, of, of West and Central Africa. Their ability to influence in those regions enables them to, you know, have a say on the international stage with respect to diplomacy, um, business, culture as well. Because when you look at even the French language, the future of the French language and the French culture, in many respects, lies in those in the in French and um, in West and Central Africa. People forget as well that this is part of the evolution of democrat democracy in the region, isn't it? You know, it's often forgotten that the pressure for democratic change began in Benin in 1990. You know, in the 1990s, when people chased the then president Mathieu Kérékou. Uh, out of uh, out of office and replaced his government with a a sovereign national con uh, conference to chart the way to democracy and you know leading to an explosion of pressure around the region and hasn't this shift uh, in French relations also been reflected um, in African Franco relations? You know, as you said, France um, it was with the um, the the drive for multi-party politics um, in um, Africa, that you had a change in French policy from 1990 um, at La Ball at the France-Afrique Summit, which said, you know, France is only going to grant economic aid and assistance to countries which embrace, um, you know, um, democratic rule. Now, obviously, it's not been, you know, applied in an even manner, but then as time has evolved, there's also, you know, a changing of the guard of the leadership. You have new leaders who are more... Um, understanding of the fact that, you know, they have to gain their legitimacy from the population rather than from France. Can I ask you that? Because it seems like there is this kind of confidence in uh, French Africa as the possibility of being able to play off, if you like, different powers. And we, we haven't mentioned China yet. We haven't mentioned Turkey. We haven't mentioned Qatar. How are those relationships emerging? And does that sort of benefit France by getting uh, its it's French African uh, partners to sort of almost act as, as proxies, or is it a competitive relationship? Well, it's a very what we can call a realist and capitalist approach because now these the Francophone countries as well as France is seeing who they can leverage the most from. And what's interesting is that this is coming at a time where you know the, there's been a change of the guard in terms of leadership in Franc Afrique. Um, you know the old guard leaders Mitterrand, um, Chirac, they passed away, as well as the old guard leaders on the African side, Houphouet Boigny, Eya Dema of Togo, as well as the late as Omar Bongo, those are the pillars of Franc Africa. Now you have a new crop of African leaders who don't have the same uh, predisposition to only seek um, assistance or seek relations with France. You have people like President Ouattara in Côte d'Ivoire, um, the junior Eya Dema in Togo, Ali Bongo. Um, they were educated abroad. They've had professional careers outside of politics, and their outlook on the world and Africa is significantly different from what the um, the old Francophone guard was. And they don't mind. They know that you know we can maintain relations with France, but then it doesn't hurt us to you know do business with the Chinese, with the Qataris, with the Turkish, as well as you know other African countries such as South Africa, Morocco, and so on and so forth. Just for uh, a definition, the precar. Uh, precare or precar is uh, is our backyard. So it has was traditionally considered for French business. Um, you know the francophone, the fourteen members of the franc zone were just really for at the exclusive zone for French business. Not so, but that's all changing now, isn't it? Including on the currency front, isn't it, Leonard? 
Yes, even on the currency front, because um, one of the big um, issues have been the reform of the CFA franc, that is the common um, uh, currency which is used in uh, Western Central Africa. I think it's only of the former French colonies, only um, Guinea-Conakry that doesn't use it, but then they have a very different history. They decided to not be part of the French Union in 1958, and you know their relationship with France has been very iffy, if I can use that terminology, but there have been calls for quite some time, for close to a generation, since the devaluation of the CFR franc in 1994, for it to be reformed. And it's only in 2019 that there was, um, you know, a commitment by President Macron. And I think in, um, in May, the French uh, economic minister, Bruno Le Maire, in a trip to Abidjan, he said the first step that will be taken is to transfer half of the reserves, half the res of the reserves, um, of uh, the, the West African Central Bank, which are placed in the French Central Bank, back to the Central Bank in West Africa, which is headquartered in Dakar. Even the name, the Communauté Française Africaine, it's so, it is so neo-colonial in a way. And I think a lot of young people in Francophone West Africa that I've met are deeply resentful of it. Yes, it's got its economic benefits, but it's a, it's really the neo-colonial nature of it is so galling, I think, for many people. And, you know, even the name of the new currency, the ECO, right? It was taken from what was supposed to be the um, the new franc, the new current common currency for the economic community of West African state members. But then, um, you know, France, alongside some of their friendly West African leaders, I will mention them, but they, you know, co-opted it and decided to name the new franc the Cool. So it's going to be interesting in that regard. But then you're very correct. Um, as I said, you know, even with respect, not only do we have a new um, generation of leaders who are not so predisposed to, you know, just moving along with the way France has been doing things, even amongst the younger cohort, because as much as France is still an appealing destination, when you go to places like New York and Washington, they are very, very significant francophone communities. You know, people from Francophone um, countries. Germany. Germany has a very, very large contingent of Cameroonian, Ivorian, um, and Senegalese individuals um, who are, you know, studying there, carrying out professional work. Italy as well, Spain. So France is no longer seen as the apple of the eye. And as a result, you know, there's, you know, so many other influences because, as you see, even you go to Cameroon, the English schools. They're most populated by, they're most frequented by people from French-speaking side. And they understand that France has its limitations because now when you look at you know, international affairs, diplomacy, business, science and technology, innovation, it's emanating from the English-speaking countries. And just to finish off with, Leonard, you know, um, where, what do you think are maybe three big things that, are gonna, that we should watch out for in Francophone Africa looking forward? Number one, the security arrangements. Because now, as you say, we've seen two landmark uh, decisions made by Macron to wind down um, the extent of France's involvement in the Sahel, as well as to suspend military cooperation with um, the Central African Republic. France has been the security guarantor of those countries for generations upon generations. Will they continue in other parts, or how will they reform that? Number two, how will France continue to build its relations with non French-speaking countries, your South Africa. We just saw um, 
he was in uh, Macron was in Af it was in South Africa, and as I said, South Africa has always been South Africa um, uh, France's largest trading partner. We also saw that um, uh, he invited a host of um, African presidents to party for the financing of African economies uh, forum, and the, a, a good proportion of those leaders were not from French-speaking countries. The last thing is how African leaders and African public, because as you can see from the public, there is. A palpable, there's always been a palpable desire to get away from the throes of Franca Africa. I mean, in Mali and Central Africa Republic, in Central Africa Republic, the Russians have already made their case as a security guarantor. So it's going to be interesting how the current African leaders in the public address this situation. Are we going to see more engagement with China, uh, the Gulf states, Turkey, Egypt, South Africa, potentially Nigeria? What can their role be in this as well? So as you can say, France-Africa relations are evolving, but there's a lot that's in store, to say the least. Quite an accelerated change. Leonard, thank you so much. What a sweep and what knowledge. Thank you very much. Really learned a lot. Thank you so much, Leonard. That's been fascinating. Very fascinating. What an interesting discussion with Leonard. It really has exposed my ignorance about uh, French Afrique. Really rekindled mine, I, I must say. It was a great chat. And, um, and in fact, I'm heading off to Bordeaux this weekend and I'm going to, which is again one of the great centres of, uh, of Franco-African studies. So I might just sort of go and have a look at the university there and see what's happening. Well, Leonard has promised me some lovely Cameroonian food in Cape Town, so I'm going to hold and on to that. And I hope soon, before long, I will be able to join you both. I am very jealous. You'd be so welcome. Tara, always good to speak to you. Thanks ever so much. You've been listening to The Ark Insider with me, Karen Allen and Tara O'Connor. Thank you for joining us. If you're interested, Tara's team of ARC produces country reports, including on several countries in the Franca-Afrique countries we've been talking about just now. You can find out about subscribing to these by emailing info at africariskconsulting.com. And if you enjoyed this podcast, please do let us know. You can use the same address and do feel free to share it on social media and amongst friends. Bye for now.